Welcome to the Learning Laborers Podcast, where we are passionate about integrating scholarship and ministry experience. All right, here we are for another episode with our esteemed, honored, distinguished, oh golly, guest and co-host, Denver. And Denver, I'm not going to ask you how you're doing. Yeah, I was going to ask you because you always ask me first. I was going <laughs> to, I was going to be the punch, but maybe um, the listeners aren't interested in how we're doing. Maybe they'd yeah. rather just get right to it. Well, I'm sure they've seen the title of this episode and they're very interested in what you have to say <laughs> because we are yeah. talking about everyone's favorite book in the Bible. Secretly. Yeah. Se- secretly. I mean, no one says um, that, but yeah, it's probably true for a lot of people. And yet is probably the, the book of the Bible that's least preached on. I would think so. Unless there's a dating series. Those were like really in when I was in high school and college. I feel like everyone had a dating series and they would either go to like Song <laughs> of Songs, Ruth. Ruth was the other one. Um, yeah. And then there's the, what was it? Jacob and Leah and Rachel. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. These are all great stories to get <laughs> advice from. All very I mean, Ruth is probably the best one to get. Yeah. But even there, it's, you know, you have a youth group full of students putting the corner of their blankets on each other, a corner exactly. of their robes on each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not best to get like literal dating advice from ancient Near Eastern <laughs> love stories. Yeah. But surely there's some principles here that were helpful. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to you drawing out these principles. Um, yeah. Because I've never done a deep dive study on Song of Songs. Um, I've also heard them referred to as the Songs of Solomon. Yeah. So I need to understand what what is that about? Um, maybe let's just start there. Well, what, the very yeah, there's like a title at the beginning of the the poem or poems, um, and it basically says like the song of songs, and then there's a preposition, a lamed in Hebrew, which is an L, like a L sound, and, and like a preposition, and then Solomon's name. So like, um. And it's so it's the same thing that happens at like the beginning of some Psalms with David's name. Okay. It's Alamed and then David's name. And so it could be to David, for David. Um, it could be by David. And it's the same thing with this song with Solomon. It's somehow this is connected to hmm. Solomon and his wisdom tradition. But that doesn't necessarily mean he's the author. I think most people would actually argue he's not the author. Oh. Because if you look at his like love life. I was about to say. <laughs> It's <laughs> got quite and a bit of compare it to the song. There's quite a discrepancy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because Solomon had like a thousand wives, concubines, or something. I mean, it was just a crazy yeah, amount. Yeah, yeah. And so. he shows up in the song a couple times in the third person. Like he's a huh. character that shows up a couple times. Um, but someone argued that he's not the. Well, we'll get into it, but okay, uh, he's not like the main beloved of the song but he's this uh actually probably an antagonist some oh. argue in the oh. song of a love triangle oh wow yeah it's crazy well for those who um you know have been uh like me and haven't done a deep dive on song of songs could you just explain briefly uh what it is what what is this song of songs yeah uh yeah so it's ancient hebrew love poetry would be, I think, the simplest definition. Okay. I think everyone would agree with. Um, and it's Hebrew love poetry. Again, in the tradition of Solomon, somehow connected to Solomon and the wisdom tradition, it gets put, you know, in the canons next to like Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. It's connected to Solomon. Um, there's debates, you know, that go on about the significance or the meaning or the purpose of these poems. Um, whether it's an allegory to more um, spiritual or theological truth. I've heard that. Or whether it's a more like, or taking a more, what you could call a natural interpretation or kind of more taking it at face value um, that it's love poetry between uh, humans, human 
men and women. So there's these various interpretations of it. Some would say that it's one cohesive poem, like one narrative, like you could, this is the dramatic approach. Some would say it's a collection of poems. But yeah, I'm kind of I'm gonna go through that history of interpretation. Okay, it might help us um, get better footing for for reading the poem. Okay, so it's just a collection of poems or songs, or maybe not a collection. May just be one psalm poem. Yeah, describing love <laughs> and yeah, romance, it, mm-hmm. it, romance, sexual encounters. Okay, thank you. And do you have a favorite passage um, um, from this? Or could you well, at least read read uh, some sort of passage to give us a sure flavor kind of, of a this? flavor of the imagery? So, yeah, uh, there's a lot of metaphor. I mean, this is poems, so it's poetry. Yeah, it's, it's a yeah. lot of metaphor um, throughout the poem. Um, so. <laughs> this is so funny to see you flipping through the pages of your Bible oh, maybe to not find that one. one you want to read over a microphone. <laughs> uh, yeah, and this is why this is why people don't preach on these passages. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Okay, so chapter four, starting in verse twelve: You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. Mm. So he's, he's um, uh, he, I'm guessing, yes, he is giving some endearing comments about his lover there. Yeah, yeah. With a lot of imagery that I don't understand. I don't know what. yeah nard is or was that something you said nard yeah i did say nard <laughs> i don't have any idea what that is i heard cinnamon yeah. that's nice yeah saffron lots of great stuff in there um okay but these are these are basically just uh i mean it's just um choice produce you know things oh, that come okay. from plants that are um expensive and or luxurious and or valuable you know, beneficial beautiful valuable yeah gotcha um okay so that's that's one of the things I think the song is helpful for actually is that it actually it gives us a window into the ancient Near East. Right. Because it's using all this imagery and metaphor, it's actually helping us know like what are the plants and animals and spices and things like that that were available at the time or known in this region sure. at the time. Um what kinds of things were seen as beautiful in their culture? You know, we might not uh, compare um, the the woman we love's neck to a tower today. We might might not might we might not, but the <laughs> the the man of the song of songs does that, and it's an endearing thing. So there's different. They use different metaphors in those. Some of them we can see and overlap, and we're like, yeah, I get how that's right. You know, beautiful or endearing. Others we are like, that's a weird way to describe someone. <laughs> uh, but yeah. ultimately, in, in their culture, so it's a window into their culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it also, I think, the song of songs is, in some ways, a good like indicator of our hermeneutical approaches especially the old testament i think you can tell a lot about someone's hermeneutics by the way they handle and treat the song of songs like what do they do with it it's almost like a litmus test of um, sure broader hermeneutical principles because there's so many approaches to it and like people have wrestled with it in lots of different ways over the years so yeah let's talk about those So the, the dominant way of interpreting the song uh, over the history of its interpretation, at least since the time of Jesus, or a little okay. bit after the time of Jesus, is allegorical. So, you know, people read this stuff and it's like, wow, there's like really erotic uh, sexual imagery. It's very graphic. I mean, the passage I read is like super tame compared to some of the things <laughs> You chose going a tame on. one, yeah. <laughs> I mean, 
Um, and so people see that language. Yeah, they see it as like like vulgar, you know, like, mm. does this belong in our holy scripture? Is this talking about yeah. sex and different kinds of sex? And um, so there's this impulse to spiritualize, to mm. allegorize, because it is carnal. I mean, it's of the body, like right. of the flesh, like literally flesh. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's this impulse to allegorize in both Jewish and Christian interpretation. Okay. There's some people throughout that history, a very few, who take a more natural interpretation. You say this is love poetry, it's romance between two humans. Um, but they're in the, the, I mean, extreme minority. Okay. But then what's interesting about the Song of Songs is there's this dramatic shift that up until the 19th century, pretty much everyone's allegorizing it. And all of a sudden, okay. the 19th century comes along. And by the 20th century, pretty much everyone's not allegorizing it. Huh. Okay, and that shift is due to what exactly? So, uh, Tremper Longman, um, he has a commentary on Song Songs, which I really recommend. We'll put in the show notes. He goes through this history of interpretation, and he basically puts it down to the Enlightenment happening, where people okay. um, are, are bringing more reason and evidence and things like that okay. into their interpretation of the Bible. And basically, these allegorical approaches, there's no evidence within the text right. that legitimizes these approaches. Um, I mean, you could argue that there is, but there's really not any clear indicators that this is an allegory or spiritualized in the text. And so all of these allegor- allegorical interpretations depend upon previous allegorical interpretations. Interesting. And so the alignment comes along and people start studying the scriptures more as uh, literature. They start looking at the right. human origins more of the scriptures and they're saying, what's the evidence that this is the correct way to read this? Because if you just look at the text, it seems to be about romance and love and uh, physical intimacy. Um, and so they're neat, like the burden of proof lies on those who are allegorizing to show that it should be allegorized, basically. When you say that they're being allegorized, um, in Jewish and Christian traditions, what are some examples of that? Like, what are they, what do they take the story to be? Yeah, so the typical allegory, allegory that's taken by a lot of Jewish interpreters, you know, rabbis and like the Talmud and Targums and these kinds of things, are that the man in the story is God, and the woman mm. in the story is Israel. Ah, okay. So God's relationship to Israel, which there's some warranty because I mean, you have the prophets; they do use uh, the metaphor of a husband and wife. Uh, you know, uh-huh. of um, Mike and Isaiah, Ezekiel, <clears throat> Hosea, right? Um, yep. To talk about God's relationship to Israel, that God chose Israel, cares for Israel, is loyal to Israel. Yeah. Um. So that's a typical one. Of course, then Christian interpreter interpreters build off of that, but they kind of move forward to Jesus and the Church. Right. Okay. So that's a little awkward, though, isn't it? But again, the Church is called the Bride. Right, I get that. In the but New still, Testament, you're... the bride and bridegroom. But it is, yeah, what's the thing is like when you get into these passages that are like extremely graphic, <laughs> right. it starts to get really awkward um, to try to continue the allegory in the midst yeah. of those passages. Um, others interpret it as God and the individual, like the individual soul's journey to God or, you know, um, love of God. Others t- would allegorize it as wisdom and the individual. So wisdom is portrayed as a woman um, in uh, Proverbs. Right. Uh, and a woman who's enticing and, and inviting you to to love her and she will love you. And so some would see this because it's in the Solomon tradition that the woman is, is wisdom. That makes some sense. And the individual. Others might say that it's about um, the king and his people. So this would be more of a Jewish interpretation of uh, the king, you know, the Davidic um, son, the Davidic dynasty, and his people. So there's a lot of different directions it can go. And all of this allegorizing, just again, uh, before we shift into the 20th century readings, are they are they reacting against just, like you said, the carnality of it, like this erotic kind of poetry are they are we are they reacting against that in some way, shape, or form, and that's prompting them to allegorize it, or what? What is the other rationale? Yeah, I th- I think it's there's probably different reasons and rationales. For some, I think that's what it is. 
For others, I think it's more of a general, um, like a general influence of Platonism and Gnosticism oh, that okay. elevates the spiritual over the physical and sees the physical yeah. as kind of, um, you know, dis- dispensable, like bad. not important or bad. Yeah, even maybe bad. Yeah. Um, and th- this book is all about physicality. And so uh, trying yeah. to find a way, how do we move from the world of the physical to the spiritual? Right. Um, so I think that's the motivation for some. Right. For some, again, a lot. I think it's just they're just receiving the tradition that they re- that they that they that comes before them, and either just accepting it or building on it or shifting it, rather than coming up with an all new interpretation. But again, nineteenth century, all these different interpretations started to come out that are more um, natural or not literal because again, it's full of metaphor. But right but sees it more in, in its human context of romance as opposed to some divine romance. Sure. So there's two categories for this. There's dramatic approach. So this is seeing the all the all the poems in the Song of Songs as being one coherent narrative. Okay. Dramatic approach. So a narrative, yeah, dramatic approach. And there's two basic kinds, two character, three character. So the two character oh. story, it's just, it sees... They're as a man and a woman throughout the story that love each other. And this is the king. Okay. Uh, the king, you know, someone even say Solomon himself. Okay. That he is the shepherd that's mentioned in other places. It's one and the same. Okay. Others would say it's three characters. There's a love triangle going on. So there's oh. the king who's brought this woman into his harem, but she loves this shepherd Boy, this like you know she has like a first love or uh-huh. uh you know and he's just a poor you know country bumpkin or not bumpkin but uh, <laughs> country a bumpkin. country guy he's not go. royalty he's yes, not the there king there we go <laughs> so the king has all these riches these armies chariots carriages i mean he's described that way whereas the shepherd just has his love for the for the woman and so she's attracted to him and she is trying to get away from the king and to her true love so some would see that story going on. And then the other main approach is more of, as an anthology or just a collection. Okay. Poems are connected to one another thematically, literarily. Um, they've clearly been stitched together in important ways. But that they're, it's not one like narrative that goes from point A to point B. It's just different poems that kind of emphasize different things. Okay. I can see that. And it wouldn't necessarily have to be the same two characters in love the whole time. It could be describing different relationships. Sure. Do you have a, an opinion on that? Which, which... I, I mean, I tend to lean towards those two approaches generally. Okay. There's a long tradition of allegorizing, but I, again, I think the burden of proof is on those allegorizing to show why it's a valid um, interpretive move. Sure. But I still think someone could go that direction and, but I think that the important thing is that the motive for it, that it, we, we shouldn't go that direction out of a reaction against physicality or a reaction against romance or sex or whatever, sure. you know, we're reacting against because those things are good. Those are created right. by God and they're, they're dignified. And so I think whatever approach you take, the important, I think it's important that we don't s- see the poem as scandalizing sex or romance, but it's actually the opposite, that the poem dignifies uh, human love, dignifies romance, dignifies sex, um, and affirms them as beautiful, as gifts of God. Right. Well, that that would be one of the key questions I would have for the natural reading is, um, okay, say this is a natural reading, whether it be a dramatic kind of narrative uh, all in one shot, or whether it be a collection of of love poetry, what is this doing in our Bibles? Yeah, <laughs> like why is this in our Bibles? I think you touched at it a little bit to say it dignifies sexuality and and those things, and I think that's important. But why is that in our testimony of Scripture, right? To who God is, and ultimately, how does this point us to Jesus, right? Like, <laughs> if we believe, yeah, yeah, these come together that way. Yeah, I think. It's important to remember that this sits within the wisdom tradition. Okay. So the wisdom tradition is trying to bring the wisdom of God to our lived experiences, like things that are everyday realities. So the Proverbs, you know, you can read all kinds of Proverbs about all kinds of topics that would come up in right. just everyday ancient Near Eastern life. 
you know, giving out loans or who you go on journeys with or, you know, <laughs> what you do with your money, all these kinds of things. And marriage is a huge part of our lived experience. Right. Romance is a huge part, especially in the ancient Near East. I mean, marriage is what society's built on. It's what joins families together. It's what produces heirs. It's what uh, provides workers for the fields. It's, I mean, it's a really, really important topic. So it makes sense that the wisdom tradition would devote an entire book hmm. to describing this romantic relationship. And I think, as we'll talk about, it shows the ideal. Okay. The ideal relationship between a man and a woman. Okay. In contrast to what it usually looks like. I mean, throughout the biblical narrative, sexism is used as a weapon. Right. You know, to harm uh, people throughout the biblical narrative. Um, marriage is constantly being threatened and and um, undermined in all kinds of biblical narratives. Um, you have you don't have a ton of positive examples. I mean, you mentioned Ruth is obviously a positive example, um, but there's yeah. a lot of negative examples. I mean, you think about yeah. like Abraham and Sarah's relationship, and then bringing Hagar into that um, and abusing her and using her. When you think about like Jacob marrying Leah and Rachel and that dynamic, I mean, there's a lot of very negative examples, and so. Uh, the way Tremper Longman puts it, so Tremper Long Longman has a really good quote in his commentary where he says, uh, what is a book like the Song of Songs doing in the Bible? Mm, that was my question. Exactly. You're asking the same question as <laughs> Tremper Longman. Great, great. His answer is, without the song, we would be left with only spare and often negative words about a reality that is crucial to the human experience, uh. love and sex. God and his wisdom has spoken through the poet of the song to both encourage and warn us about the unquenchable power of love and desire. Mm. The song celebrates the joy of physical touch, the exhilaration of exotic scent, the sound, the sweet sound of a lover's voice, and the taste of another's lips. The song is a divine affirmation of love and an acknowledgement of the pain that often accompanies it. That's beautiful. Yeah. You're making me you're making me want to preach on Song of Songs. Goodness. Yeah. It's good. <laughs> and it's I think it's important to recognize that that is theologically significant. Yeah. Yeah. In and of itself, hearing God's wisdom about love, romance, sex, marriage, engagement, I mean, betrothal, these, that's actually theologically significant even before or without allegorization. Yeah. That's good. Because we that's are good. physical beings. Yeah. Many of us are called into marriages and. All of us experience in some sense, you know, physical desire and yeah. sexual desire and what do we do with that? And I mean, it's a, it's a really, really important topic. Okay, so you take more of the natural approach. Yeah. Right? And do you lean towards the two-character or three-character interpretation? I don't know. I think I need to keep reading this song over and over, not, <laughs> not to get, like, obsessed with it. <laughs> but I don't know like you are with aliens. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> I, um, I would much rather be uh, obsessed with aliens. I don't know. <laughs> I'm intrigued by the three-character drama. Okay. I think it explains some of the tensions that exist. In the okay, in the the poems that the two character doesn't really have a way to address the anthology <laughs> approach obviously can handle those contradictions or discrepancies ah. because they could say well that's a different poem so they you know gotcha. it's taking a different look at a different relationship or whatever. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely think that there's coherence to all the poems. They're brought together in a very coherent way. Whether that's one single narrative or not, I don't know. I think. I'll leave that to the experts. Um, but I think there's thematic connections that we can explore to show how the song is coherent in a really theologically significant way. And that's through this uh, idea of intertextuality. Oh, big word. Big word. I feel like I hear about it a lot. Yeah, basically meaning, yeah, it's, I think, more and more popular, I think, 
and works on hermeneutics and how we interpret the Bible within its canonical context. But basically recognizing that the authors of these books, like Song of Songs, especially in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew Bible, also the New Testament, they're aware of one another's works. Like like the writer of Song of Songs is aware of what came before okay. these texts. And I would argue that specifically, in addition to being aware of the Solomon story, obviously, um, the writer of the Song of Songs or writers of the Song of Songs, uh, if it's multiple people, are very aware of the Genesis 1 to 3 narrative. Uh-huh. And there's a lot of connections thematically and literarily to the Genesis 1 to 3 narrative. And I think that helps us kind of draw out the theological significance of the book. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's an important important thing to draw out because I think as you're seeking to understand uh, scripture in general, um, intertextuality or playing off other other stories in scripture often are clues as to how we should read certain things. Right. If we can see intentional connections being made, then that that would clue us into some things that the author wants us to see. Right. Right. So Genesis 1 through 3, what specific connections do we see in Song of Songs and Genesis 1 through 3? So there's two kinds of clues to find intertextuality. There might be more, but there's two big ways to identify texts that are in dialogue with each other. And one is um, a frequency of some word or theme in both. So for instance, the word garden... The word garden appeared in that reading I did a little bit ago in chapter four. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the word garden appears eight times in the Song of Songs. Okay. Which is more than any book other than Genesis. Interesting. And that's just the word garden. Garden imagery, it basically fills the entire song. I mean, the entire song is talking about trees and fruit and um, vineyards and, I mean, flocks and herds and, I mean... That stuff is just throughout the entire song. Yep. And then 13 of the 14 uses of garden in Genesis appear in the first three chapters. So you have an extremely high concentration of using this word in this song and in Genesis 1 to 3. Yeah. So that by itself doesn't necessarily mean, oh, we need to read these together, but it's it's a big clue that we should go in that direction. Yeah. Another is the... uh, appearance of a really a really rare word or a really rare idea in these two different places okay as a almost like a clue or as bible project would say a hyperlink yeah that the later author is using to connect you back to the the older story or the older text okay and we have one of those in a really important verse um song of songs 711 okay with the word teshuka teshuka and that means? It, so that's a good question. Because <laughs> it only appears three times in the Hebrew Bible. Okay. Here in Song of Songs, once in Genesis 3 and once in Genesis 4. Ooh, is this um, about desire? It is about desire. Ah. It's about desire. So the word shuk, where it comes from, the verb, okay. it means like to overflow. So it's used a few times. Um I think in the prophets, to talk about like a vat overflowing with wine. Okay. Or the land overflowing with water and grain, different things. So to overflow. Okay. Uh, but when it gets put into this noun form, teshuka, we only have these three instances that go on what the meaning is. Um, but it seems to indicate some kind of desire. And and if it's connected to the verb, then it would be some like the idea of an overflowing desire. An overwhelming desire, like desire that overflows. Okay, it can't be can't be controlled, you know. And so in Genesis three, it's used. It's in the curse um, being declared to the woman, where God says that your desire, your teshuka, will be for your husband. Okay, your teshuka. So she has some kind of desire for her husband. Mm-hmm. Then Genesis four, it's used to describe sin's desire for Cain. Yeah. So sin as a beast has this overflowing desire, like a like a predator, right? Has mm-hmm. this instinct that it just it just wants to destroy, to consume. 
Sin wants to consume Cain. So it's a desire, an overflowing desire. Almost like we would use like mouth-watering, you know? Mouth-watering yeah. is an English idiom that could be used in a positive sense or a negative sense. Like if it's a if it's a lion whose mouth is watering because it wants to kill you and eat you, that's negative. Yeah. But mouth-watering for like a food that we love or even in a sexual or romantic uh context it's a positive thing so teshuka is not necessarily bad it can be bad not necessarily positive or negative it can be okay. either. it depends on what is desiring what like if sin or a beast is desiring a human that's obviously negative sure if a human is desiring another human the question becomes is that a positive thing yeah so if, if all we had was genesis 3 and 4 you could you probably argue it's negative yeah, I, I've actually, I think I've heard in certain um, theological camps, especially around the role of like men and women that turn to Genesis 3 to talk about some things that well, this word desire, and they probably point to Genesis 4, is a negative thing. It's a bad desire that she has for her husband or something. And they 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 make it negative. Like yeah. this woman's desire for her husband is negative somehow. <clears throat> yeah. So yeah, like you said, if those were the only two uses, then we there's some ambiguity there. But Song of Songs seven eleven is that what you said? Yep, seven eleven, just like the gas station. Okay, well I'm gonna read this verse in the NIV, or do you suggest another version? Yeah, NIV's, NIV's good. So come, my beloved, beloved, let us go to the countryside, let us spend the night in the villages. Oh, sorry, uh, seven ten. <laughs> okay, because I was connect- like, yeah, it's connected to seven eleven, seven ten, of a much less known gas station. <laughs> I'm looking at it and going, okay, all right. So my bad. Song of Song seven ten. I belong to my beloved, and his desire is for me. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is the woman of the song. Declaring that the man has a desire to shukha for her. And it's, I mean, it's clearly positive. Yes. These are songs of her praising the man that she loves. Okay. And her response to his overflowing desire for her. Okay, so Uh any of us that have gone through uh, puberty and have gone through like a betrothal period leading up to a wedding, we could probably identify with this guy. (laughs) He has this overwhelming desire uh-huh. for her and her response is come my beloved let us go out to the countryside let what you read the first time 7-Eleven let us spend the night in the villages let us go early to the vineyards let's... so she says okay you have this desire for me let's go let's go you know basically a romantic getaway let's find some privacy okay so the desire for her is not a negative thing it's a positive thing and so I would argue it's also positive in Genesis 3. Right. That she desires her husband, but he rules over her. And so instead of, so she desires her husband, but he's going to rule her instead. But then sin desires the man, right? The seed of uh, Adam and Eve, which is Cain. Mm-hmm. And he gives in to it. He acquiesces to it. He doesn't rule over sin. Right. And so it's painting this contrast that the woman is supposed to desire the man and he should be responding uh, with desire, right? Right. Mutuality. But instead, he rules. But then when sin desires him, he gives in and he doesn't rule, right? So it's painting mm. this very negative contrast. Yeah. But then yeah. you get to Song of Songs 7 and there's this beautiful reversal of the curse. Whereas for Eve... Uh, for the woman, she does not receive desire for desire. She receives ruling, dominion for desire. Yeah. But this woman, she's desired by her husband. She receives the desire. So it's like mm. it's showing how this curse is being dismantled in this relationship. Yeah. Um, which I think is really important. There's also mutuality throughout the song. So there's multiple times. You have um, chapter 2. Verse 16, chapter 6, verse 3, chapter 7, verse 10, all describe 
uh, for lack of a better term, we could say mutual possession. They belong to each other. So I belong to my beloved and he belongs to me. Yeah, just 6-3 is I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. And don't forget the end of that. And he browses among the lilies. He, I was going to leave that part out, but yeah. <laughs> he browses among the lilies. So there's this mutuality of belonging to one another. Okay, so that like, that challenges this um, cultural norm sure. where the man owns the woman. Right. But not the other way around. Right. But in the song, it's mutuality. They both own each other. Mm. They submit to each other's ownership. So, I mean, this connects, you can connect this to Paul's advice, right? Where he is talking about the sexual relationship of man and wife. And he tells them in Corinthians that they do not, um, what does he say? You don't have authority over your own body, or are you yeah. basically you own each other's bodies. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and read from First Corinthians seven because I think it's important to draw it out. In verse uh, chapter seven, I'll just start in verse one. We'll read a, a good bit here. Now, for the matters you wrote about, Paul's responding to some things that they were concerned about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Yeah, so that second half of that um, principle is extremely countercultural, especially in Greco-Roman society. Very, yep. Um, Probably less so in Jewish society. Um, but still there's something countercultural going on here where yeah. everyone agrees up to the halfway through that sentence where, yeah, of course the man has authority over his wife's body. But then when you flip it and you say she also has authority over her husband's body, now you've, you've changed something yeah. in the cultural ethos. Yeah. So that's really key. That happens multiple times throughout the, the poem. You also have the woman in the, in the poems uh, a majority of the time is the one initiating these encounters and pushing the sure. relationship forward, right? So kind of like a root, Interesting. Right? right? She's the right. one kind of moving things forward. That's, you know, again, kind of countercultural and significant. Yep. Again, there's this mutuality. They both desire each other. And then you also have this really interesting dynamic where she she's able to shed and dispose of the shame that she experiences at the beginning of the poem. Huh. So remember Genesis 3, when sin enters into the relationship, shame enters into the relationship, right? Yeah. They're ashamed of their nakedness. They hide themselves. Yeah. Okay, by the end of this song, there is no shame in the <laughs> between the two lovers of their bodies. They're very comfortable with each other. But the, so- but the song starts in chapter 1, it says um, uh, in verse six, do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards, my own vineyard I had to neglect. So she's saying, I've had to work out in the fields because of this. Okay. I've, I, my complexion is very dark. Yep. And don't look down on me because of this. Yep. So she's working out in the fields. Okay. Again, Genesis 3, that's hmm. supposed to be the curse on the man, right? Oh, fascinating. He's he's going to work the fields. It's going to be hard. You're saying, I've experienced that curse. I've been working out in the vineyards. And because of that, I've neglected my vineyard. Okay, so this is some kind of reference to her body. Okay. Or to her femininity. Okay. Or... Something in that realm, sure. But by the end of the by the end of all these encounters and poems, she's talking in the final chapter in chapter eight about Solomon. How how Solomon basically buys love. He he basically pays for love. He gets love through power and wealth, um, even though 
verse 7, if one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. This is saying you can't buy true love. Okay. And then further down, uh, verse 11, Solomon had a vineyard in Baal Hamon. He let out his vineyard to tenants. Each was to bring for its fruit a thousand shekels of silver. So Solomon's got uh, all these vineyards. Okay. You know, all this wealth, all these possessions. Right. She says in, in verse 12, but my own vineyard is mine to give. The thousand shekels are for you, Solomon. The 200 are for those who tend its fruit. Huh. So she's saying, I'll let you have your, you know, bought and paid for, uh, quote unquote, love. All these okay. wives, concubines, all this stuff. My vineyard is mine to give. I mean, that's that's an incredible statement of agency. That's true. On the part of the woman. That, again, is very countercultural. That yeah. she can decide to give her vineyard. Again, vineyard being her body. Right. To to the person she she decides to. And, it, I mean, it calls you back again to Genesis 3 where if the problem was there's this desire from the woman towards the man, the man rules in response. In a, in a sense, in Song of Songs 8, the woman is saying, you don't rule over me, right? Yeah. Not in a sense of like defiance, but but like you said, agency. Yeah, agency. And when you compare that to the beginning where she was embarrassed of her vineyard, uh, and now she's she's not embarrassed, she's not ashamed, saying, it's my vineyard and I'll give it to whom I want. And so you you have this throughout the this, this psalm, uh, her being able to escape this shame, again, that comes from the curse. So you see it throughout the these poems, you see a dismantling, I would argue, of the curse of Genesis 3. Right. The shame and the strife that enter into the relationship of the man and the woman, Genesis 3, because of sin, is dismantled in this poem. This, what you could argue, is an unrealistic, ideal poem about man and woman. It's basically like a what-if scenario. Huh. What if the relationship of a man and woman wasn't tainted and corrupted by sin, huh. by shame, by strife. What if they truly gave themselves to one another? They were unashamed. They um, loved each other sacrificially and were completely loyal to one another. Hmm. Uh, they didn't use sex as a weapon against one another, but they just truly trusted and were loyal to each other. It's basically this what-if scenario. It's like showing us what... Huh we were meant uh, to experience in in, mar- in marriage between man and a woman. Yeah. In contrast to, again, story after story after story, both in the Hebrew Bible and in just our own lives that we experience every day of that relationship gone awry. Right. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And uh, what a powerful force that could be within the canon of scripture mm-hmm. um, yeah I think this is one of the things I don't know if a lot of people talk about this or realize it um, but I'm, I'm thinking of it because Carmen Joy Iams just released this article did you see this I don't know if you saw this or not no I didn't but she was talking about um, Ezra and Nehemiah and how we often read these people um, as a uh, doing things that are good because they're in the Bible and they're written from kind of right. the first person. And and she was basically putting forward this idea that, um, you know, if you actually read closely, they're, they're both of their kind of programs end disastrously and they don't work. And you're yeah. supposed to tune into that. But also if you read it within the canon of like, say, Malachi, you mm-hmm. see that what they're doing is not good. <laughs> they're not yeah. supposed to be doing that. And yeah. uh, so a close reading within the canon of scripture um, often can give us some insights that if we're just reading it kind of within its own its own book or something, mm-hmm. might not be easily apparent. And I think this is a strong case for, you know, um, that kind of same idea that we need to read uh, the scriptures canonically and allow yeah. wisdom to be stoked from different sections that actually intentionally interact with each other like you've drawn out with Genesis 1 through 3. Yeah. Yeah, I think this provides a a critique of the way that these relationships had been going in these various stories. Right. 
you know, a critique of Abraham and Sarah, a critique of Jacob and Rachel and Leah, a critique of, you know, I mean, you, the list would go on on David, Bathsheba, Uriah, that that whole well, uh, yeah. love triangle that goes, uh, gets very violent. Yeah. There's, I mean, it's a critique of all these stories and showing you what was meant to be. And we, and, and that doesn't uh, mean that there's no connection then to the gospel or to Jesus right. or to, it's just that it, I don't think the connection's made best through an allegory where we're like, okay, well, the, the, the two breasts are the old and the new Testament. <laughs> right, so that's that's a real that's a real interpretation. Oh goodness um, gracious! Or the two breasts are love of God and love of neighbor. Or like instead of trying to like find wow, trying to find these allegorical connections, yeah. because the thing is, every interpreter is going to interpret those symbols differently. Mm-hmm. There's no way to test them. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, finding the connection of saying, well, we know Jesus Christ in His death and resurrection. He reverses the curse, right? He dismantles the curse of sin. And so right. this book is showing us what does it look like when sin is dismantled in the marriage relationship? That gives us a window into how our marriages ought to be functioning. Yeah, that's right? great. Yeah. Um, and on. it does, in that sense, show, give us a window into how Jesus does interact with the church, how God does interact sure. with his people. Not in an allegorical sense of trying to find a way to connect every, you know, every idiom and every metaphor to that relationship, yeah. but in a general sense of the loyalty, um, just the the powerful love, right? Love as strong as death, hmm. jealousy as demanding as the grave. These beautiful images. It does, I think, connect us to God's love for His people, Christ's love for the church. But there's steps we need to take to get there. And not yeah. jump straight to it, um, but I think it's so important. So it's theologically significant, I think, when it was written, but also for us today, especially as you said. There's these debates and conversations going on, uh, especially in the evangelical world, about gender relationships, right? Um, the way men and women interact with one another, especially in the marriage relationship. And I think this book is often neglected in that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Which is tragic because this is the book, the book in the entire canon uh-huh. that actually directly re- addresses that from start to finish. Uh, yeah. Like we jump to like a few verses in this pastoral epistle or we jump to a few verses in, in that one, you know, rather than looking at this book that's actually devoted to this topic. Yeah, it's a great point. And letting this, you know, even if we don't give it the the like prime place in the conversation it should be up there like it should be tier one on yeah. the passages that every person should have to deal with and yeah. um interpret in in any treatment of that subject of of gender marriage all of that yeah and i definitely in my experience in those conversations this book does not get brought up in my experience so i think you're spot on with that we got to we got to talk about this and wrestle through some of these things for sure. Wow. That's, I mean, I'm, I'm enlightened. I feel I feel uh, full of insights now about Song of Songs. Yeah. Well, I would just encourage everyone to read it. I mean, you can <laughs> sit down and read it in a, a pretty short sitting. I mean, it's just uh, it's just eight chapters, and it's pretty engaging. It's not, <laughs> it's not bland. Uh, Your next date so night. So get it'll you keep know. you interested. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> and just paying attention to the way that the these. Uh, lovers interact with each other, treat one another, speak mm-hmm. a- about one another, and just letting that be a, a picture and a window into a curse-free love, a curse-free marriage. Um, I think if we can begin to practice that, wow, this this book could have an impact on a lot of our relationships, even outside of marriage.
Yeah, I, I agree. I'll push on you a little bit here, just the pastor and sure. me. Um, if you could come up with three practical applications for how to live out a curse-free marriage based on Song of Songs, and they all have to start with the same letter, of course. Um, <laughs> of course. But, <laughs> you know, I'm totally putting you on the spot. We didn't, we didn't pre- prepare for this at all. But, I mean, just some key ideas, key things to carry, um, you know. Well, if you can't yeah. come up with three, that's fine. But just maybe um, some practical application. I think, firstly, the way that the song describes the use of power and rights mm. within the relationship is really important. Whatever view you take on the gender hierarchy or non-hierarchy in the marriage, paying attention to the way these two people treat each other and defer to one another yeah um this mutual possession where they like don't own their own bodies they own each other's bodies and um that they both desire each other both love each other both belong to each other i think that's really important to to take to heart and to to put into practice that um again because we see echoes of it in in paul's instructions as well yeah Yep. Uh, for his convert. So I think that's a, a big one to um, to take from this. You call that maybe just kind of practicing mutuality? Yeah, mutuality. The second, I would probably say a trust and vulnerability. Mm. So these two lovers are extremely vulnerable with one another. I mean, they right. wear their hearts on their sleeves. They just express the way they're feeling uh, as silly or crazy as it might sound mm-hmm. um, in the way they describe <laughs> things and um, but they're uh, they don't hold back they they just yeah. throw it all out there for each other and there's this trust that they they're in a in a there's safety that exists in the relationship where they feel yeah. like they can be totally honest and they're not worried about you know should I share this part of my heart or this way I'm feeling or not sure yeah that's really good um so that's the second, I think. And then thirdly, I'd say to kind of bring it back to that more um, theological level of not to despise the physical. Yeah. And physicality. Uh, this book is full of physicality, um, that it's it's focused on physical features, on physical mm-hmm. encounters, physical feelings, like that they wouldn't have known, but now we know are like, produced by various hormones in us sure and, you know chemical things that are happening in us physical things that are happening in us to not ignore all that or to see it as bad or yeah yeah carnal or dirty or whatever yeah but that that's actually the way we were made right and the song leans into that mm-hmm. and this is a good thing this is a gift from god and again it's part of a canon that also says hey after you have sex you're impure <laughs> And you can't go to the temple until you purify yourself, you know. And uh, and it sits right there in the same canon with that, right? Which shows that like it's not that sex is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. I think sex is a good thing. It's designed by God, just like our bodies are a good thing, you know. Even for yeah. those that either aren't married or are married yet, um, there's still this idea of like coming to terms with our physical beings. Yeah, that we're not just spiritual beings. Um, that happened to have a, you know, a body for a brief period of time. Yeah, yeah. But we are inherently physical mm-hmm. and spiritual beings, and the two are inseparable. And we need to come to terms with that and embrace it. Not to, and that doesn't mean giving into every passion and desire that that, <laughs> that you know comes through our brain. Yeah. In fact, there's the refrain that comes up over and over in the song is do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. There's this warning throughout the song as well that like, these are your feelings, but also be careful because love is powerful and these affections, you know, are powerful things. And so it's not just, it's not a hedonism where it's like, just give in to whatever you feel. Um, But it's a, it's coming to terms with what we feel and embracing it and expressing it in ways that are healthy and ways that line up with God's desire for us 
and is designed for us. Um, and then learning to um, have self-control uh, or to temper those that maybe would harm us um, or be against God's design. Mm -hmm. uh, much like, again, to go back to Genesis, the relationship of uh, Adam and Eve and the relationship of Cain and sin. Saying like, Cain gave in to sin yeah, um, and allowed his anger, his rage, this thing that was happening inside of him to be expressed in a very ungodly, violent, vicious way. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, maybe if we could narrow it down to those three. I'm sorry, there's no alliteration there, but. Um, no, those are solid. Those are great. Um, just to, uh, some practicing mutuality. Mm -hmm. Honesty and vulnerability. That's the second one. And the third one is embracing physicality. Yeah. And there you go. For those that are married, embracing physicality is going to involve physical <laughs> encounters, um, just like the, the two beloveds. Well, I think there's another rabbit trail at some point to, to chase. Don't have time or space here, but um, how those who are single can interact with this book as well. But I think your third point gets at that, that there's not, yeah, you know, there's, there is a way to express physicality and your body. And I don't know, that's probably a, a whole can of worms to get into, but I think there's, mm -hmm. there's wisdom there uh, some way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that's a really good point that as you know, both of us are married. And so um, for us, it's probably, easier to see the direct applications and correlations yeah. yep um but yeah that would be great to have a um someone who's single on and um, ask them like how does the song hit you or like what do you do with sure. it or how do you how do you uh, how do you bring this into your you know spiritual understanding and practices and your mm -hmm. walk with christ yeah that'd be really interesting yeah all right I think that's a great place to end, and uh, I appreciate all your study and research on this. It's been fascinating. I, you know, I know you're really obsessed with the Song of Songs. I know you read it every day. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> you talk, <laughs> you talk oh. to me about it all the time. No, no. There yeah. probably was some wisdom in the the rabbis and the Christian theologians <laughs> who kind of like warned about it. Like, don't start here. <laughs> Well, now we know what uh, way up to it. We know uh, what Denver's up to on a <laughs> late night. Oh gosh! Yeah. <laughs> hey, man, you ragged on me about aliens, so I gotta find something to get on you about. I would say we could end on a reading, but I don't want us to get that little like explicit mark on our our podcast. <laughs> right, that's a good idea. I don't think yeah. we've ever had one of those. Yeah. Um, no. But I can end with this reading. This one's okay. Great. The famous one at the end. That's. Everyone quotes a lot. So, under the apple tree I roused you. There your mother conceived you. There she who was in labor gave you birth. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. Amen. There you have it. The song of songs, i.e. the best song. I mean, that's what that really means in Hebrew. The best oh, song. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like Lord of Lords. Yeah. And think about that. Great. Best song. Go read it. All right. Thanks, Denver. You got it, Taylor. Until next time. concludes our episode and thanks again for listening. The Learning Laborers exist to create an intentional space for ministry experience and scholarship to overlap. We want to thank everyone who supports us and helps make the podcast possible. And if you are interested in supporting these efforts, check out our Patreon 
where you can join us by giving as little as $3 per month. Our hope is that more laborers, more ministry leaders, can feel resourced to point people to Jesus through their study of Scripture. Continue to tune in wherever you listen to podcasts.